Welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please subscribe to the show and please share widely with others. It makes a huge difference indeed. Before we kick things off, a big thanks to our sponsors, Quilt AI. Quilt AI is a mission-first technology company seeking to increase empathy in the world using the internet as a source of knowledge, inspiration, and communication. Quilt AI works on issues including climate change, gender equality, and health across the world. They're headquartered in Singapore with teams in New York, Zurich, London, Delhi, and they believe that the true value of the internet has yet to be seen. The internet has been used to index data, store photos, and conduct e-commerce, but it truly has not yet been used to understand the other. And this is the mission that Quilt AI is on that of converting the internet into a space of understanding and appreciation. So a big heartfelt thanks to our sponsors. Today we are talking with Linda Manson, who is the Director General of the MAVA Foundation in Switzerland. And we're going to be talking not only about the work they do, but interestingly about some of the challenges and um, dynamics they're going to be facing over the next couple of years. Because the MAVA Foundation currently grants out about 90 to 100 million dollars annually and they are starting to wind down their operations so within a couple of years they will be granting out zero so there's going to be a lot of challenges and it's not as straightforward as it seems normally a lot of the guests we have on the show they're with foundations who have endowments that are are being driven in perpetuity in this case it's it's quite the opposite so we're going to find out a bit about what's going on and linda it is an absolute pleasure welcome you onto the do one better podcast today thank you alberto it's a pleasure to be here with you today great well you're in switzerland i'm here in london um why don't we start by finding out a little bit about the mava foundation how did that come about and and what's it doing Okay, the MABA Foundation is a family philanthropic foundation based here in Switzerland. We are only philanthropic, we're not operational at all. And we were founded about 25 years ago by Dr. Luke Hoffman, who is the grandson of the founders of Hoffman La Roche. And he founded MABA really is an expression of his personal interest and passion for conservation. So our only focus is on biodiversity conservation and sustainable economy. And this is in line with Luke's own passions. He was a practitioner in conservation. Um, He was not just a philanthropist. He was actually boots on the ground, hands in the mud, Mm. uh, taking an interest in conservation activities. Um, Then about 10 years ago, he handed over to his son, Andre Hoffman, who's now the president of the board of the foundation and leads the work that we do. And we, uh, we give grants in West Africa, in the Mediterranean, in Switzerland, and uh, through a cross-cutting program called Sustainable Economy. And as you just mentioned, we will be closing in about two years. We stop our grant making after 2022. And we just barely passed a big milestone for us, which is that we just hit the 1 billion Swiss franc mark in our grant making over our lifetime. That's about $1.1 million over all of this time through which we've supported about 1,300 projects with more or less 450 different direct partners and all kinds of other indirect partners. 
That's massive. That's massive. Who are your partners? How do you engage with partners? And are you um, are you engaging with uh, smaller delivery partners all over the place, or do you have a select few uh, who act maybe as sort of distribution channels to to the front lines? How do you um, how do you work with your partners, and what do they look like? Yeah, we really have the full range. We work with a lot of the big NGOs. We're a big supporter of WWF and mm -hmm. all of its various offices or many of its various offices. Likewise, with BirdLife, we work with BirdLife International and many of its different partners. We also work with the smaller local NGOs on the ground in the different regions. Um, so I would say we really have the full full range of types of partners from large to small, and we work differently with them depending on who they are and, of course, their their needs. Some are more um, sophisticated than mm -hmm. others. Uh, some require more support and, support and engagement from us than others. And so we react accordingly. I mean, we really respond to what their needs are. We do some regranting. We have several partners that then uh, we grant to, and then they regrant for specific purposes. Um, we have one, for example, that does regranting for organizational of small civil society organizations in North Africa, mm -hmm. and we do it via regranting because you really need to be right there on the ground interacting with those organizations, which is a capacity that we just don't have with our relatively small team. Right, right. What's the team? Uh, is it a big team, small team? We have 20 people okay. uh, split across two offices. We have some people based in Dakar, Senegal, and the rest are here in Switzerland. Whereabouts in Switzerland? We're in Glan, Switzerland. We're actually housed in the IUCN building. So there's IUCN and WWF, Ramsar and us and a number of other organizations all housed together. It's a great place to be and a great yeah. place to have our offices. Beautiful place to have your offices. Yeah. Prior to this, when when Luke was running the, the foundation on a day-to-day -day basis, the team that was in place worked out of his home. They actually sat literally in his living room. Uh -huh. uh, and it was about 10 years ago when I came in and that my mandate was to professionalize the foundation. And they decided at that time to set up offices in the IUCN building to have a much closer, more interactive relationship with people in the conservation world. Oh, fascinating. And that's worked out really nicely. Yeah. And the, uh, the almost $100 million that you're granting out annually, what's the average grant size that you, um, that you hand out? Yeah. I mean, if you look... Over time, I, our average grant size is about $750, give or take. Mm -hmm. I think in more recent years, it's closer to probably a million. Right. And those are, are they multi-year commitments? Multi-year commitments, exactly. We typically make a three-year commitment. It can be longer, can be shorter, but typically it's about three years. Right. And tell me, so fascinating that you're doing such huge volume of work. And in two years, that's coming to a conclusion. What's driving that decision? And and then we can drill into some of the, the challenges that you're facing. But what is it? Uh, who, who said, look, time to wrap it up and why? Yeah. I mean, this is the question, of course, that, that we're always asked. Why are you closing? But why? Yeah. Um, and <laughs> the answer is pretty simple. And it's that our founder, Luke, planned it that way. He set up MAVA 
um, in relation to his personal interests, he never intended to create a permanent institution, and he didn't want to oblige his family members to carry on working in his image. He really wanted to leave them free to pursue their own passions and their own philanthropic interests. So he set it up this way explicitly. Right. So he had that in mind. And now that uh, that you are coming to a conclusion, what are your partners saying? Because it's not a small amount of funding that's going to be uh, no longer available. Um, well, interestingly, it took quite a while for people to actually believe us. Okay. This was... <laughs> yeah, a, you're a, joking. Really... They're like, oh, you're joking, yes. Exactly. This was, I mean, I knew from the day I signed my employment contract that there was an end date. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in fact, there's a nice story around that. Uh, when I accepted the job, after it was offered, Luke sat down with me and said, Linda, you do realize it's only for 12 years. Hmm. And I mean, he was such a long-term thinker. He really saw that as a, a, an imminent date that I needed to be aware of. And of course, at, at that time, it seemed like such a ridiculously far away um, event that I didn't need to worry about it. Of course, it's not far away anymore. It's just around the corner. That date is rapidly approaching. And we, we for many years, have mentioned it to different partners. It wasn't a secret. You know, it wasn't something that we didn't want anybody to know about. Um, and they, you know, they... They kind of heard it, but it never really took it on board. And then in in our last strategic period, so we set a strategy to last us from 2017 through to 2022, we decided we needed to communicate more intentionally about it, more thoughtfully about it, and in a more planned way. Yeah. So we started communicating really regularly about it, and we we did it all wrong in the beginning. I have to say, like we 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 made a mistake in the way it was communicated because the the family confirmed the decision that they wanted to close the foundation, but hadn't really decided yet what they wanted to do. And so we started communicating something along the lines of, well, the funding's going to run out. We're not sure what's going to happen. So we need to plan as if we were closing. So be prepared for no funding. And of course, you know, that was so complex that all anybody heard was, okay, I'm fine. Right. Um, so we, we really, we, we learned from that and we revised the message to be much clearer. We're stopping. Your funding is stopping. Plan on nothing more from us past this date. <laughs> um, and <laughs> over time, the message has sunk in, but I have to tell you, there's still people who secretly believe that funding is going to continue. Right. Either, either through a new iteration of the foundation, which kind of would make so no sense because we have a foundation that operates really well, is well known, has a good reputation. Why would we close it down and replace it with something else? But anyway, they think either there's going to be, you know, a Mava version two. Or more frequently, that okay, maybe funding is stopping for everyone else, but they're not going to stop funding me. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> they like my work, and of course, we love everybody's work, but we we will be stopping funding. So it's been an, a surprising challenge to get people to really believe it. I think we're there now. There's a few holdouts. Hmm. Um, I actually had someone sit down with me not so long ago and say, okay, Linda, so when MAVA ends, how do I access the Hoffman money, Hoffman family money? Excellent. <laughs> not, to be, not to beat around the bush, right? Just, not uh, to beat around the bush. It's like, okay, tell me how I do it when you're not here anymore to act as intermediary. <laughs> 
but you know that is a good point right i mean i think if i were on one of those uh on one of those boards that's been receiving funding i might if, if i look at the board of the mava foundation today there, there are a lot of members of the hoffman family who sit there and you know i i think because they've been doing philanthropic work for so long it wouldn't be inconceivable that one of them or a couple of them or a group of them might say, yeah, we want to do something philanthropic, even though the MAVA Foundation in itself, itself is coming to a conclusion. It's not inconceivable at all. In fact, they will continue with their philanthropic ah. efforts, but not in the same way we're doing it at MAVA. Okay. So, for example, um, two of Luke's daughters have really one has a very strong interest in literature mm -hmm. and she has a foundation which supports writers and supports literature and another is really interested in the arts and they will continue their philanthropy but with more emphasis on those areas mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right so in other words uh without simplifying things but thematically speaking there's definitely going to be a change Yes. Philanthropy wise, philanthropy will continue in some in some form or another. Yes. There yeah. are several other family foundations that exist already that will carry on with their own philanthropic interests, which I think it, I I believe strongly that family philanthropy should be driven by family passion. Yeah. And and if if you're passionate about the subject, that's when great things happen. That leads to the innovation and the risk-taking and the experimentation that really family foundations are best placed to do. Sure, sure, sure. And now the, the interesting thing also, even though you are granting uh, close to $100 million a year, is that you don't actually have an endowment. Correct, correct. We have beneficial interest in a certain number of shares of stock that the family still owns. Um, so we have a guaranteed income of Roche. Right. And then we have a guaranteed income flow that lasts until 2022, so long as Roche declares a dividend. Right. So that income flow will just stop. Mm -hmm. And 2022, is it the, uh, the earlier part of the year, the latter part of the year? At the end of the year. So we will stop our grant making in 2022. All of the work that we're funding needs to wrap up by then. Um, and we will take the first part of 2023 to do our final evaluation and analysis to communicate and, of course, to celebrate uh, together with our partners and our staff and our board and all of our other friends and stakeholders. Mm. And the team itself, I guess everybody, literally the, the organization, uh, the legal entity will come to, will cease to be. That's right. Yes. Right. So there's a full two years still, still to go. Exactly. A full two years plus some part of 2023. And what are the dynamics that you're, that you're facing right now? Uh, you, you alluded to a little bit in terms of the uh, incredulity of some of your recipients thinking, yeah, not quite, I don't believe you, you're not leaving, you're not going anywhere, but you are. But what other dynamics are you um, are you coming across that you weren't expecting in, in winding yeah. things down? Yeah, um, there's some, I mean, some of it we expected and some we didn't, of course. Mm -hmm. Let me touch first on some of the, the benefits okay. uh, that we maybe didn't foresee exactly. And that the, the, the 
first and most important one of those is the the focus on priorities. Um, I would say every conversation we have now at the board level, at the staff level, with our partners across the field is more strategic than it was before. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to imply we weren't strategic before. I think we were, but it, it you you have this sense of urgency now, this focus on what is the most important thing we can do. Can we get it done by then? And where's the best place to put our resources? And knowing that there isn't the possibility for a follow-on phase um, has a way of really focusing the mind. I think before we were a little more relaxed in the sense of, okay, if we don't quite achieve those objectives this time, one more round of funding, we'll probably get there. But we don't have that luxury anymore. So it builds in a strong sense of urgency and focus on what can really be done. The The other aspect um, that isn't such a surprise, but has turned out in a, in a positive way, I think, is that we're building in sustainability from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And we used to have those conversations with our partners. Oh, you really should diversify your funding sources. Oh, it's really important to bring other people on board. Um, and they may or may not have really done that. But um, now it's it's baked into the planning. It's baked in from the very beginning when we set out the strategy. Um, and maybe we'll talk in a moment about the kind of unique way that we're, we're, we built those strategies. But we tried to include other donors from the, from the very beginning to ensure that we weren't the only ones funding a cer- certain issue, that there were others who would be there to help carry things forward when we're not there anymore. Yeah, tell us a little bit about that. So you, you connected, I guess you're acting as a, as a facilitator to some extent, so some, some pools of philanthropic funds and some of your, your existing... Um, beneficiaries? Yeah. Um, so when we ask our partners what they need, the one number one request is on fundraising. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we've um, given a grant to uh, Acumen Academy to build an online fundraising course for nonprofits that's free to everyone. Uh, okay. Not just MAVA partners, but free now to everyone for the next few times it's offered. And we've encouraged all of our partners to do that. We also have uh, put out a call for proposals for people asking for very specific support to their fundraising efforts to help them build their own capacity and mm-hmm. build their ability to to raise other funds. Um and at the same time, there, we have a lot of requests, really a lot of requests to make introductions to other funders. Right. And I, I think there sometimes might be unrealistic expectations of what will happen when an introduction is made. Like, mm. oh, we say to our friends, you really should fund these guys, and it happens. You know, we all know it's a lot more complex than that. Um, but we're very, very actively uh, pulling out our address book, seeing who w- could be a, a good potential partner for some of the ones that we fund. Now, making active introductions, um, I actually often send specific project information to different funders based on what they express as their as their interests so we're super actively involved in trying to mobilize the funding community where there are overlaps in interest so that they can carry on some of the work that we've been involved in mm-hmm. and now you touched on it in terms of um, a bit of the capacity capacity building but I'm curious you you and the whole organization have so many years and such deep experience in major level grant making. 
and and consequently also I imagine project evaluation, scalability, all of these things. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Where does that knowledge go? In other words, yeah. where because it would be a shame if it didn't go someplace. I'm just curious, what are you going to do to to ensure that it's fully leveraged and that those who need to avail themselves of that expertise and experience can somehow tap into something? Yeah. Um, this is a hot topic of debate um, right now, and I would say even for the past couple of years, but okay. it will be a main focus for us over the next couple of years. We really want to make sure that we are capturing our learnings and sharing them in an engaging, interesting, and effective way with the, the correct audiences. That could be at the institutional level, having to do with philanthropy, mm -hmm. the way we do it, our approach, the, how we've dealt with our partners, or it could be on conservation issues and what we've learned in working in a specific, specific way or using certain strategies and what, what the outcome of that has been. Uh, it will be a major focus for us over the next couple of years to try to capture that learning in yeah. an appropriate way. Yeah. There is the whole question of what do you do with your entire body of documents? Mm -hmm. And this, um, I'm in touch very frequently with other foundations that are that are closing or in some way have a limited life. And it, you see the full range of what people do, everything from donating every document they ever created to a library so it can be accessed in, in perpetuity. Um, to no, we decided not to do anything because nobody will be interested. So we're we're a little more on that side of the spectrum. We're we're not sure it's very useful to be saving all of the internal documents in some way that they can be accessed in the future. We mm. really think something curated and synthesized is what will be most useful to others in trying to access the knowledge that we've built Absolutely. up over all of these years. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it would be great to just have all your documents and that's that. But I, I certainly think that you should capture, you know, sort of when somebody goes from one organization to another, they have, they have, they prepare some handover documents for the next person who's going to be doing mm -hmm. that job. And maybe you could do something similar to that, you know, having, um, uh, having interviews, having people do video clips or, but basically all of those key, key stakeholders in your organization who are doing remarkable work, having them just think of it as a handover document and then encapsulating that in some format so that others can yes. can think okay this is what these guys were doing this is how we can we can benefit from it yes i guess the other the other question that i have in my in my mind uh, it's more from a sort of human resources perspective so you have you have your team and everybody knows that within a couple of years after two years they won't be at mava they'll they'll be doing something else but they won't be there any longer which you know, when you have one individual within an organization who's looking to leave, well, you may or may not be aware of it, but, you know, they, they, they have one, one eye on the job and then they have another eye on looking at what the, you know, what the labor market's all about and what opportunities are, they, are there. In your case, you have everybody um, mm -hmm. thinking along the same lines. And I'm just thinking from a human resources perspective, how, how are you engaging that? How do you make sure that people are still fully engaged and and also that they're supported in what could very well be a, a bit of an unsettling period for some. Yeah, completely. I mean, we really uh, are managing two different parallel big projects. One is uh, winding down all of the project work 
that we're funding and supporting all of our partners in all of the ways we can think of uh, for, for their success post-MAVA. And then doing something very, very similar for MAVA staff. Mm-hmm. We also want them all to thrive and be successful post-MAVA, the, the, just like we wouldn't want the work we're supporting via the projects to stop when we're not there anymore. We don't want anyone's career to come to an end sure. when we're not there anymore. Um, and I have to say that as, as the, the team leader, it's a really crunchy, interesting problem to manage through. Um, and it's it, it makes my job very interesting and I have to say enjoyable. I love doing it. But it takes a, um, it, it takes some careful thought for sure. And we've done, um, we have, so you're right in saying that everybody knows their job is ending and that presents some very particular challenges. Uh, keeping people to the end, keeping people motivated to the end, managing people's anxiety, um, and helping them to prepare for what comes afterwards without ushering them out the door them out the door too soon. Sure. Um, so one of one of the things I noticed that was that people just had questions, you know, well, well, what's gonna happen about this and what's gonna happen about that? And so we very early on decided to put in place and announce the entire transition package. Okay. Years before the transition is gonna happen. Um, so people, everybody knows this is what I have a right to. This is the support I'm going to get. This is the kind of package I'll get at the end. Um, and all of these questions, all this level of anxiety just died down. Mm-hmm. People mm-hmm. just need, they need clarity. They need to know. They need to be reassured. Um, there is a little bit of feeling of, well, of course we're going to treat them well. Why don't they, why doesn't everybody understand we're going to treat them well? And of course people knew they were going to be treated well, but it's one thing to know it and it's one thing to see it on a piece of paper. Sure. Um, and hear it from the 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 board president, you know. Um, and that just really helped lower those levels of anxiety. We have already started doing group workshops to help people think about um, their future plans. What might they be well suited to do? What are the strengths? Uh, We'll be doing one coming up about um, how do you profile yourself? What are the areas that you think you want to be known for? Mm -hmm. So let's just say, for example, someone says, I'm really interested in working more in circular economy. We can provide opportunities to have more of a voice on those issues and have more of a profile on those issues and and write on it and produce a learning piece on it or be the spokesperson for the foundation on it. Or, you know, the more we know about the interests people have afterwards, the more we can help support that. And then, of course, there's all the usual kind of um, support for training if they need it. Uh, outplacement when the time comes, and an interesting package uh, at the end of their contracts. Because also you got to make sure that you keep everybody on board till the very end, right? Because you could start having people drop off a quarter before, half a year before the due date. Yes. Well, this is what what keeps me up at night. If anything keeps me up at night, it's this. One of the things that we um, decided to do was to go full out on our strategy to the end, achieve some big things, and then stop. So what we're not doing is kind of sloping gently out of existence. So Mm -hmm. we're full on 
until we end. Um, that means we need a full and motivated team to handle all of the work that we have to do still. So the idea of losing people early worries me. Sure. On the other hand, I completely understand it. These are people with families. They need to be looking for their future. And I completely understand that if an unmissable opportunity presents itself, of course, they're going to be looking at it. And we're we're entering what I've always identified as the quote unquote danger zone. I don't mm-hmm. think anybody would have left their job four years ago. I right. mean, there's still a lot to do. These are great jobs. People enjoy what they're and doing. And four years they're is very, far away. And in four years is far away. Yeah. Um, two years before a year and a half, two years before, you know, you might start going, oh, look, there is an opportunity. Maybe I should look at it. But nine months or six months before, that's a different story entirely. Yeah. And we, so we're, we're managing two objectives at the same time that are um, in direct tension. And that is keeping people on staff and motivated until the very end and supporting them in finding their next steps even if that means they need to leave earlier than we want them to. Yeah, yeah. Here's a question for you. Where are you going? Yeah, I would really like to take all of this experience that I've developed over all of these years of management and leadership and put it towards helping to develop strong leaders uh, in the nonprofit space. I think we need mission-driven leaders who are are led by their their values and are trying to make the world a better place. And I want to put my time and energy towards helping make that happen. Yeah, I think that's great. How did you, by the way, how did you get into all of this? How did you end up? So you were a WWF before. And I think Luke uh, Hoffman was the co-founder of WWF. He was, yes. Yeah. Yes, he helped found WWF. That's where I first met Luke and also Andre was in the context of WWF. Um, yes, I mean, I have kind of a, a winding serendipitous career. I've never been very good at making future plans, which is why it's so Great. surprising I have such a clear plan now <laughs> for myself post-Mama. <laughs> that, that isn't the style yeah. of how I've done anything up until now. Um, and and I, I really started very firmly in the business world. I was a stockbroker okay. uh, back in the 80s. and uh, Great time to be a stockbroker. Yeah. <laughs> well, up to and including the crash of 1988. I remember um, that. 508 yeah. points, wasn't it? Yeah. Something that now seems you know, ridiculously Trivial. small, but yeah. um, uh, at, the, at the time was, was seismic, absolutely seismic. But I, I had the opportunity to see really the, the, pro, the pure profit motive uh, up close and personal. And it did not sit well with me. And I couldn't have articulated it this way at the time, but it just was not in line with my values. And so I wound up leaving from there and 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 bouncing between the for-profit and non-profit worlds bef- before really winding permanently up here in the non-profit world. Mm-hmm. Great story. Great story. What's the, um, you know, normally I ask folks about success for the next 10 years and what that looks like. Obviously, Mava Foundation won't be around in the next 10 years, so we can sort of do away with that. But what... Oh, what or yeah, what? Or maybe not. Yeah, we we uh, <laughs> we designed our strategy for the last six year six years in the context of the longer term vision of what we were trying to achieve. Okay. So we actually do have a pretty clear vision of what what success in twenty thirty looks tell like. Tell me, tell me. Um, well, it 
it would be hard to detail it because it's in relation to each piece of the strategy. Okay. Um, and so we're, you know, all of the things that we're doing are in the context of where we want the work to lead to, even after we're not here supporting it anymore. Right. For us, more specifically, when we uh, when we close, turn off the lights, um, when we first started setting up our strategy uh, in 2016, that would for start date in 2017, we started by asking the question, okay, what's going to make us happy? What, what do we want to see when we turn off the lights and walk out the door? And we decided what we wanted to do is contribute to achieving some really big conservation outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we designed everything around that. Within each program, we defined between four and eight big outcomes we want to achieve. We pulled together all of the people we know working on those issues and they designed the strategy together and they implement the strategy together mm-hmm. and they have transparency over where the budget's gone and on who's doing what and on how all of those pieces come together to add up to something that will be achieved by the end so number one for us success will be achieving these outcomes number two success will be these coalitions of partners are well-placed to carry on. Um, We want them to continue working together and we want them to be strong and we want them to be well-funded. And then the third piece of that is uh, with individual partners, just making sure that they are as well-placed as they possibly can be to thrive when we're not here supporting them anymore. And we offer um, organizational development support and leadership support and peer coaching and introductions to other funders. And there's yeah. a long list of things and a whole program of work behind it all set up to achieve that third pillar of success, which is that they thrive when we're not here anymore. Great. Well, I wasn't expecting an answer for 2030 and success in the yeah. next 10 years, but you gave me one, which is great. What about a key takeaway for our listeners before they switch off? What's that key thing that you'd love for them to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's episode? Yeah. Um, well, we, of course, are faced with the real sense of urgency because of our end date. But I think we should all have that sense of urgency. Time is short. And um, I would encourage all of my colleagues out there in the foundation world, the funding world, to rethink the internal processes, to simplify decision making so that we can move fast, which is what the world needs from us. Excellent. A healthy sense of urgency. You've been listening to Linda Manson, who's the Director General of MAVA Foundation in Switzerland. Linda, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the show today. And to our listeners, thank you as ever for joining us today. Please subscribe if you haven't already. Follow us on LinkedIn and share widely with others. Linda, really great having you on the show today. Thank you so much, Abelter. It's been a It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Do One Better podcast. If you want to find out more about our show, about our guests, additional links and resources, visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I dot org. And don't forget, success at the Do One Better podcast is about inspiring you to be more philanthropic, to think more about sustainability, and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Hopefully, these stories will encourage you to take action and change the world around you for the better.